Hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. Uh, in today's episode, we are reviewing the Doctor Who The Collection Season 9 Blu-ray box set. As we venture back in time to 1972 to John Pertwee's third season as The Doctor. Will it be the smorgasbord of classic serials that you find in Reginald Stiles' larder, just as he did in Day of the Daleks? Will it get all woke and political like it did in The Curse of Peladon and the Mutants? Or will we have a jolly jaunt with the Royal Navy and the Sea Devils? And the biggest question of all, is the time officer still a load of old Tom Tit? <laughs> <laughs> My name is UK Jason, and with me today are... Mark. Denise. And US Jason, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. Fantastic. Right, guys. So, um, obvious question. I don't think any of us were actually around at the time that this was broadcast. Well, um, I was alive, but I was only three. So, uh, <laughs> if, if I was put in front of it, I can't remember very much about it. So. Yeah, I didn't come along until later in uh, 1972. So, um, my first real uh, kind of like taste of these uh, serials were through the VHS releases and a couple of uh, BBC repeats that were shown in the 80s. What about you, uh, Mark and Jason? So for me, yeah, it was it would have been a combination of, of VHS releases. I may have got some of them that my auntie recorded from UK Gold for me, but the Sea Devils, I remember... Well, actually, no, I remember two really specifically and vividly. The Sea Devils, the BBC Two repeat, which was a weekly... I want to say Friday night thing. Yeah. Uh, um, and that was really exciting because it was, uh, you know, since the series finished, I hadn't had that experience of tuning in weekly and getting cliffhangers and everything. So I remember that. The Time Monster, um, because I, I collected all the videos and different things, and then I kind of never really finished watching them because I didn't want there to be no more that I hadn't seen for a long time. So I didn't watch the Time Monster VHS until a week before Rose was broadcast in 2005. So I was kind of vaguely aware of its reputation, um, but it it more than <laughs> it more than surpassed uh, kind of what I was expecting from it. But it, I had a couple of mates over, and it was just a really fun thing to to, to watch together with a few drinks uh, on a Saturday the week before Rose went out. You know, we kind of uh, really laughed at the the cutting-edge slow-motion effects and things like that. And I suppose for you, Jason, uh, in the US, it would have been uh, PBS uh, broadcasts, I presume? Yeah, I was not alive for Season 9. I am literally as old as Season 11. I was born on the first day of studio recording of the first episode of the Season 11 production block. So I would have seen these episodes probably actually earlier than most of you because these hit the United States. We got the John Pertwee package on New Jersey PBS in early 1985 movie format on Saturday night starting at 11 p.m. I would have seen some of these stories at that time in the wild, but being 11 years old, that was kind of past my bedtime. So I didn't see the whole of season nine until it hit Long Island PBS in 1987. And then in 1990, when they came back around on Long Island PBS, Channel 21, baby, I started recording them on VHS for myself. But I only recorded the stories that I really enjoyed. So I can confirm to you that of all of season nine, the only ones that I deemed worthy of keeping forever 
1990 out of season nine would have been Curse of Peladon. I didn't like any of the others enough to save them. So I didn't end up acquiring them until years later. Okay. Well, that's going to be interesting to see your takes on these stories then. So uh, the season opener was the return of the Daleks after a five-year absence from the show when they were supposedly wiped out at the end of Evil of the Daleks at the end of Patrick Troughton's first season. So, um, and this was the first time, bar the cinema films, that we'd seen the Daleks in colour, and they decided instead of keeping the, the silver and blue scheme, they would paint them uh, gunmetal grey. <laughs> uh, although we did get the Supreme, which was painted gold. So my first um, interaction with this story was obviously through the excellent uh, Target novelization by Terence Dix. Um, but the first time I saw this was, I think, around about November 1988. It was one of the very first Doctor Who videos that I bought um, with some birthday money as I'd uh, kind of been reinvigorated as a fan um, through Sylvester McCoy's then airing 25th uh, anniversary season, so his second uh, year. Um, so I was then like kind of trying to lap up all kinds of like extra Doctor Who stuff because um, I'd been my fan gene had been reignited. So um, I remember the day of the Daleks, as it was titled on the sleeve of uh, the video, and um, I remember really enjoying the story. Although again, I think like everybody's going to say. The, uh, the uh, Dalek voices are a lot to be desired. Yes, that's right. It's not even a question of quality over quantity in the number of Daleks in Day of the Daleks. It's uh, pretty poor quality Daleks as well. But uh, yes, I mean, this is fixable. And if you want to watch a fixed version, then there's one of those available as well. Um, I like the um, central tenet of this story very much. And like you, Jason, I read the novelization first. And that was like, yeah, I really get that. That's very clever. That's, you know, is that the first time that it happened in Doctor Who that somebody had gone back in time to prevent the thing that they actually caused by going back in time? I think so. That's the sort of thing that gets your, your young fans thinking. Yeah, it's kind of like it's a very Moffat kind of like take on a on a story, isn't it? I mean, kind of like used to obviously now the Doctor like you know hopping back and forth within a, a story, but like you say, Denise, this is probably one of the very first times that they'd actually used that concept. And uh, you know, can we actually change uh, history to such an extent that it has an impact on you know the the future as well as the past? Yeah, because you hear people sort of say that uh, the the modern series has used time travel a lot more than the the classic series, but within this season, you've got Day of the Daleks and the Time Monster, which are both using your time travel, uh, you know, in some really inventive uh, ways. I think, and it's kind of the idea that would you know eventually be used for the Terminator to uh, you know to very uh, kind of blockbuster uh, effect in the spawn of franchise, isn't it? Of of going back in time to to prevent a war. Yeah, and well, I mean, the Terminator obviously. Um... And James Cameron denies it, but they famously, um, Harlan Ellison sued uh, James Cameron, didn't he? Because he said that the idea was taken from an old Outer Limits uh, episode, I believe, called Soldier. Soldier. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting to see whether either Barry Letts or, or Lewis Marks or Terence Dix had actually seen that, because I presume the Outer Limits probably would have been broadcast um, on 
you know, uh, UK television by that point. Yeah, they're from the fifties, aren't they? So you'd imagine we would have uh, we'd have got them in the UK by that point. They've been showing them here on Talking Pictures TV. I've been making my way way through them. They're they're excellent. Loads of them hold up really oh. really well. They are they are classics. Yeah. I just yeah. want to explore that then because Soldier airs on Outer Limits September nineteenth, nineteen sixty four in the states. It was the first episode of Outer Limits's second and final season. So that is basically seven or eight years before Day of the Daleks would have been written. I am curious because I don't know what is the history of Outer Limits airing in the UK. I'm not positive this would have been something on Louis Marx's radar. I'm going to try and quickly research mm-hmm. that as you guys are talking. But that's an interesting point. I'm going to give Marx the benefit of the doubt and say he wouldn't have known thing one about Harlan Ellison in 1971, but carry on. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, old episodes of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits being broadcast on uh, Friday nights or Saturday nights late on uh, like BBC One, uh, usually after, like, you know, Saturday nights as a kid I was one of the D night I could stay up. Um, and, you know, obviously you start with the Basil Brush show, Doctor Who, Generation Game. You've got then the two Ronnies or, you know, Mike Yarwood, Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, and then into Match of the Day, then Parkinson. And then I remember right at the end of the evening, literally around about midnight time, would be an old tw- Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. So certainly in the late 70s, uh, they were a bit still being broadcast. So, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see whether or not, I think the Outer Limits made its debut on BBC Two rather than BBC One um, in probably around about, I think, the late 60s, whereas like stuff like Star Trek made its debut in 69 in the UK on, on BBC One. So that was a couple of years. It actually debuted after it had been cancelled. So I have the answer, and this is courtesy of a website called televisionheaven.co.uk, C-O-U-K. Television Heaven is all one word. So Outer Limits was 1963 to 1965 in the States. This website says, and I quote, in Britain, the series was originally screened on ITV in 1964 when Granada Television broadcast 34 episodes. It received a limited run on a number of other ITV regions, but it wasn't until 1981 when BBC Two transmitted the entire 49 episodes that the series attained a much belated but fully deserved full comprehensive transmission so we don't know if soldier would have been one of the 34 episodes aired in the uk in 1964 because season one is 32 episodes so it's not a hugely i suppose if you're starting to think about time travel stories to think well can you travel back in time and avert something or does that you know, create a paradox. So I suppose it's uh, sort of that parallel evolution of another writer coming up with a similar idea isn't isn't impossible either, is it? Because uh, once you start thinking about time travel and paradox, yeah, and it's a famous thing, isn't it? Like the grandfather paradox. You know, if yeah. you go back in time and you kill your grandfather, you effectively potentially are supposed to have, like, you know, may wipe out your future existence because then you know they can't then give birth to like, you know your parents, and then obviously then that doesn't. That so it's a thing that obviously I think Barry Letts was obviously aware of because this is the first mention that we get of the Belinovich limitation effect. Which seems to have more than one effect, actually, doesn't it? 
It's dependent on the writer, isn't it? It's dependent on what's he, what, what they want. To do. <laughs> yeah, because in the in the booklet, they, uh, they as as uh, as these sets all do come with the um, quite a, quite a nicely designed, laid out little booklet. And uh, yeah, they talk about the when they came up with that idea, and then they sort of box themselves into a corner a little bit. So when uh, when Joe asks what it is, they just have some ogrons burst in or something, so they don't have to uh, they don't have to answer it. <laughs> it's a nice way of sort of setting it up, but not really uh, not really having to uh, commit themselves fully. And obviously, speaking of the ogrons, that's an, another great design um, from you know what John Pertwee used to really like, didn't he? With those kind of like half masks that would have been enable like the actor to give more of a, a performance because obviously he always cited the Ogrons and the Draconians and the as his uh, like favorite monsters. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's nice to see kind of like, um, I, don't, I don't know where did Louis Marx have them as a necessity because there are, there are only three decrepit Dalek props left. And uh, so they had to like fill in with um, something else. Um, you know, to do like the more action orientated, like kind of like um, things that the story required. Yeah, it seems like he was fairly vague in the scripts. Uh, it says here the scripts referred to the Dalek henchmen as monsters, and they were only christened Ogrons shortly before production began. So it sounds like maybe what he wrote was a bit sketchy um, in terms of just saying, "Oh, they, you know, they got some monsters." Uh, I suppose maybe to uh, to speed up the action and uh, and do the uh, do the things the Daleks can't manage. Potentially tearing sticks, like script editing there. Then, they, I mean, this is obviously they they make a kind of like a surprising thing of the, the Daleks really kind of like appear mid episode one, which is quite unusual because the kind of the, the trope of a Dalek story set by Terry Nation is that they always appear at the end of episode one, and um, I mean, I know that you've got the uh, the the good um, making of collection uh, mark and it goes into like much more detail. Um, is the myth true that, that obviously Terry nation saw that the Dalek story was in production and got a bit annoyed that um, the production team hadn't asked him to, to write this one. I, I don't remember from the complete history, but in the, in the, again, the booklet that comes with the DVD, um, it says that they, they approached, um, they approached Terry Nation and asked him first, and he said he was too busy on uh, the Persuaders. Yeah, I said, Let's and, and Dix met with Nation at Pinewood Studios on the set of the serial The Persuaders and mooted the possibility of him writing a story for 1972, but Nation was too busy. He granted permission for a Dalek serial to be written by someone else on the proviso that he could approve it and receive a credit and a fee. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it must be, uh, it sounds like he was uh, he was on board with that one. Always after the uh, the paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> it's always the thing, though, isn't it? If the name of the monster is in the title sequence, then you know it's not a big deal when they actually rock up, is it? I mean, you know they're going to come. <laughs> yeah, it's striking that balance of of the publicity that that bringing the Daleks back, especially after a sort of a five year break, um, is gonna is gonna bring and and kind of wetting the appetite and maybe getting a Radio Times, uh, yeah, kind of photo shoot or a cover or something, isn't it? And and but but also having the, uh, the the shock sort of thing as well of uh, of them appearing. So you only really get that in the classic series, I suppose, The Chase, isn't it? Uh, you don't, you, they're not in the title of that one. And then Frontier in Space, uh, Final Park, Cliffhanger. And Earthshock, of 
Yes, for, yeah, for the Cybermen, yeah. yeah. And the Five Doctors, I guess. That's the other one where you don't have a a, uh, a telegraphed Dalek appearance. Well, that's more like a little like um, cameo, isn't it? I think every, every uh, yeah. <laughs> cameo in that story, but... Um, so what do we think of Paul Bernard's uh, direction for this story? Because um, he seems to be very well thought of for this particular story. Uh, but then uh, by the time of the Time Monster, Barry Letts is quite critical of his uh, directing style. And after that, I'd, um, I don't think he was asked back for the show, was he? After after season nine? No, I think that was it. Because one of the, I can't remember which one now, one of the, the extras, I think oh, it might be the... Um... The, the brand new Time Monster making of documentary. Yeah. They've got some some archive footage of, of Barry Letts, and he yeah he talks about how um, yeah he didn't ask him back, and then they they worked together on some other show later on further down the line. Yes, that's right. Or, yeah, something. yeah, and and they yeah they talked about it then, and, and sort of it said to him why he never asked him back. But mm-hmm. I think Day of the Daleks is really the action bits are quite kind of dynamic and stuff, aren't they? The um, the little quad, uh, not not quad bike, whatever you call it, the sort of three wheeled bike thing. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's not very fast, is it? But uh, it looks, it looks quite cool. And uh, and then the bits where the uh, you know the Daleks and the Orgons are advancing on on the house as well. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's quite good. Well, he takes advantage of the limitations, I think, and shoots it as well as he could. And obviously. Um... You know, you've got the benefit of the special edition then that adds in more Daleks and more Rogrons, which uh, is, is um, for, for me, it's, it's a nice extra to have, but like with most special editions, it never quite replaces the the original. Um, but I'd, I'd say I really do love that crash zoom that he does of the Dalek in the tunnel at the end of uh, episode one. I think that's a, a lovely touch. I think this is... I think this is the worst directed of the first nine or ten Pertwee serials. I think season seven is perfectly directed across the board because you have Derek Martinez, you have Douglas Camfield, you have Michael Ferguson, you have Timothy Coombe. All these are fabulous directors, and they're responsible for the first full two years of John Pertwee. Timothy Coombe then gets fired by Barry Letts because of problems that arose during the making of Mind of Evil. Specifically, Coombe didn't get enough coverage of the unit invasion of Stangmore Prison, so they had to go back to the castle on Barry Letts' dime and film a half day of pickup shots. He then replaces Timothy Coombe in the director's roster with Paul Bernard, and Bernard does the same thing. So, part two, the cliffhanger is the Doctor coming face-to-face with a Dalek for the first time in five years. The director never gives us a reaction shot of John Pertwee seeing his worst enemy for the first time in all these years. I don't know if the director didn't understand this was supposed to be an important mythical moment or if he just wasn't a very visual director, but that is a major problem because if you're watching this thing in sequence, like I, I did on my pilgrimage two years ago, you haven't seen the Daleks in a very long time, and now they come back and you have a director who couldn't seem to care less. He doesn't get very good direction out of his cast. You have that famous moment in part one where you have one Ogron who is speaking very, very slowly and gorilla-like. And then you have, oh, the, yeah. mm. and then you have the Katy Perry left shark version of the other Ogron who's speaking 
BBC English as if he's working in a David Mamet play over in the next studio. <laughs> and then, of course, there's problems that the director should have screened. You have this head gorilla, and I think it was Anna Barry who said on the audio commentary that she was basing herself on uh, Leela Khalid, who had been a Palestinian terrorist. She says, we do not commit murder two scenes after her side has just killed a couple of unit troops in cold blood. So these are all things that a competent director probably should have been able to catch. And then I'm not even going to get into the fact that they got the Dalek voices wrong or that the Daleks invasion plan involves three Daleks attacking the building from one side, leaving the back side of the building unguarded, as Nicholas Courtney famously pointed out. Some of that is on the writer. Some of that is on the uh, director. But after the two years of greatness, when you have Camfield and Coombe and Ferguson at all and Derek Martinez, this is not a great story to look I at. I think the locations are nice, though. It's to make good use of the locations, the house, the tunnel by the river. I think I think they all work very well. Yeah, I would say the location work looks looks very very good, and is like professionally shot. But uh, part of that is I don't know whether it's the limitations or whether Paul Bernard had a certain kind of idea of what the material was because I know shortly after this and after he left Doctor Who, he became quite a a regular director for the famous um, children's ITV show, The Tomorrow People, which was at the time kind of like labelled ITV's answer to Doctor Who. And that was quite obviously not as... If if we could call Doctor Who more highbrow and more aimed at like a family audience, The Tomorrow People was definitely aimed at kids. So whether or not Paul Bernard had a particular, you know, opinion of of what he was working on and perhaps that then like kind of like showed and i think it certainly shows later on with the time monster uh with his some of his directorial choices in there but um i I think you know there are some good um you know directorial shots in this one i'll just come back to that by noting that the part three resolution to the part two cliffhanger is the doctor runs away and the dalek never even sees him which is not a very dramatic moment and when I was watching this story for my pilgrimage in April 2021, I wrote, quote, that low-speed tricycle chase is a far come down from where 1972 had previously taken us with helicopters and action by Havoc and incredible stunt falls. Terrence Dix in the novelization does much more with the sequence. And I'll just plug to myself, this is episode seven of Doctor Who Literature, uh, the novelization of Death of Day of the Daleks with Tony Witt, who's the founder of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, The novelization is a banger. The TV story, however, I just don't (laughs) hold in quite as high esteem. There's only one of the uh, one of the extras is uh, is location, 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 uh, where they uh, they take Katie Manning to meet the man who now owns the uh, the the trike uh, that they they do the. Uh, they do chase on and they're saying about how they were really popular in, in like 1972 and then shortly afterwards they were banned because there were so many accidents because uh, they weren't very stable and uh, as he says when he I mean, and, and Kate managed quite kind of game to uh, to get on this thing at, at her age and everything so they, they put a helmet on her and, and set her off and said don't press the accelerator too, too far otherwise it will rear up <laughs> and, and tip you off the back of it so I suppose you can see why they were shooting it quite slow 
uh, or why, why uh, you know, they were doing it quite slowly uh, for the for the film. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, I guess the answer would have been to uh, to put a stunt driver or something on it and uh, and have um, Stuart fell on the back in uh, in Katie Manning's wig and clothes. <laughs> 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 this is the story where the discontinuity guide wrote, this story does for uh, tricycles what myxomatosis did to rabbits. <laughs> this is also the first Doctor Who story where the Doctor kills somebody with a gun. So that's also a demerit. That, that, that oh, has to fall yeah. on uh, mm. Louis Marx and Terence Dix. It's quite a jarring moment, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's something that Terence Dick sort of later commented on, didn't he? That he regretted that moment being in the actual story itself. And it was taken out of the special edition, I think, along with Left Shark Ogron. <laughs> Both of those things were taken out by the restoration team. And and the special edition is is a great like kind of like a companion piece to this because it does mm-hmm. kind of like show that obviously had they had more Dalek props and uh, you know perhaps like better. Um, you know, model effects work. I know the the futuristic scenes are mainly CG, um, but it just gives you kind of like a bit of more of a, an insight into like the potential of the, the story and the limitations that they had in 1971 when this would have been made. Definitely, and it's uh, it's one of those stories where I think probably for a lot of fans, like um, we learned what quizzling means. You know. Uh, I learned what serendipity meant from the Green Death, and uh, there's, there's there's various sort of words that, that I only know what they mean because they've been in, in Doctor Who. <laughs> Quizzling is the one from Day of the Daleks. Quizzling was Norwegian. Mm. Ah, right. Yeah, he was a Norwegian politician, and when um, the Nazis occupied Norway, he uh, decided to be on the wrong side. I didn't realize it was named after a person. That's yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Chat one podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Always educated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Random, useless information. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, this um, set, this disc, this first story gives us our current, um, like, behind the sofa uh, guests um, for this box set. And we have the usual trio of Peter Davison, Sarah Sutton, and uh, Janet Fielding. Um, gently taking the mick, <laughs> as, <laughs> as always. Um, but then we've got the new combinations of Katie Manning and Michael E. Bryant, and then we've got Wendy Padbury and Sophie Aldred. So how did we think those combinations worked? I have not seen the Blu-rays yet, as they have not come out to the States and won't be here until July. So I'm on this recording mostly to, to discuss the stories, but my prediction is that Peter and Janet are going to mercilessly savage every element of every story, making you wonder why they're Doctor Who fans in the first place. That's my prediction. Let's see how right I am. Well, I mean, it's nice because Sarah Sutton's got a little bit more to say for herself than she has in um, previous box sets, I think. She's sort of found her found her voice on this. And she's, she's a quietly witty lady, I think. Liked her a lot, and of course they're they're loving Katie's costumes, you know. And there's a fair amount of envy there as well, you know, because she got to wear something really nice and really fashionable <laughs> in <Yeah>. every <laughs> single story, and she gets a whole new outfit. And of course they're going to react to that. But yes, I mean, when I was watching these stories for the first time in the 80s and 90s, it's like, you know, 
Because if you were a teenager in the 80s, you had this pathological hatred of 70s fashion. You know, you felt physically sick if you wore big collars or a pair of flares because that's just how you were. That's how, how you were conditioned, you know. Anything, anything that wasn't sort of cool 80s clothes, it was like... I say cool 80s, you know what I mean. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but now, of course, you know, you see these clothes and they are vintage icons. I mean, you know, she's complaining about her white boots because they look like she had a pair of broken legs. So she put some red <laughs> nail polish on the heel and up the back so that they looked a bit more interesting and uh, things like that. But yeah, I mean, she had some fabulous costumes and it's always interesting to hear what all of the ladies have to say about that. And Wendy and Sophie get on really well. They have a good laugh together. It's brilliant. And yeah, Michael E. Bryant, I just want to cuddle him. <laughs> it's it's a good it's a nice mix because as you say, sort of um Davison and, and Fielding and Sutton do uh they do sort of like affectionately make make fun of it, I think. Um Wendy Padbury and Sophie Aldred are a bit more kind of respectful and they're, they're pulling out some of the positives. And then Katie Manning and Michael E. Bryant were there and they're bringing their first-hand experiences and, and recollections of it, which is which is really, really nice. But I think what was really interesting was Peter Davison uh, commenting on John Pertwee's performance. And he's quite surprised. He's sort of saying that he's, he's very kind of, uh, you know, kind of direct and commanding all the time and not... Uh, not not really kind of charming and funny and then and obviously they're seeing truncated versions of these stories but they're, they're quite surprised when there's the little humorous bit in the sea devils when the doctor's radio that he's just built blows up and i thought it was interesting because that was Pertwee's own concerns about the part as well and, and at certain points started asking the writers to put those moments of charm in and it's interesting sort of peter davison as a as somebody who's played the doctor as well kind of recognizes that as a requirement of, of the role, so that was that was really interesting. I think seeing uh, yes, yeah, in one doctor comment on a, another doctor's approach. And I think Sophie Alder as well, because she this is kind of her era of watching Doctor Who when she was a kid. So that's quite nice that she kind of uh, you know kind of remembers some of this stuff. I think I'd still love to see one of these where they get maybe Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy on a panel together and watch some sixties stuff. Oh yeah, like the like the stuff that they may have watched when they were younger. Because I know Peter Davison talked about being scared of Tomb of the Cybermen, and, and Colin Baker's got remembers the Unearthly Child and things like that. So it'd be be interesting, I think, to get get those later Doctors watching some '60s stuff uh, together. Yeah, and obviously those three, and along with Paul McGann, do seem to uh, be quite regulars on the convention circuit. So they do have uh, they do know each other. Quite well, so that would that would be a, a great behind the sofa for uh, uh, the next uh, black and white box set, whatever that mm. one's going to be. <laughs> oh, I saw a saw a thingy on Twitter about that today. I don't know how true it was going to be, but um, yeah, they're thinking season one. Oh, I think with just a just a photo reconstruction on Marco Polo. Marco sadly, oh, mm. you know, I mean. I would love to see that animated in wonderful colour, but uh, it's a long story. But, um, mm. I mean, how true these things are that you read on Twitter, who knows? It was on the following rather than the for you side, so it's more likely to have some <laughs> truth. But, uh, 
well, rumours possessed that possessed that Marco Polo was returned, but um, no one's <laughs> brought it up yet or or found it down the back of the sofa. So, you know, we know what, what those kind of rumours are like. Moving on to Peladon, uh, as we uh, do the uh, the Curse of Peladon, which sees the return of the Ice Warriors again after another quite uh, lengthy uh, gap uh, not appearing in the show. So we have um, obviously the the second of what you would call probably free returning um, monsters for this season. Uh, now my first um, watching of this show was during 1982, the summer, uh, where it was formed part of Doctor Who and the Monsters, which was a repeat season um, that uh, bridged the gap between season 19 and uh, season 20. I remember um, but, that. That's when I saw it yeah. as well. Because the year before you'd had the five faces of Doctor Who, and then That's this, right. yeah, this year you had uh, this one. Yeah. Was it Curse of Peladon? Was it Genesis of the Daleks? Oh, and um, Earthshock as well. And Earthshock. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and they were they were aired in forty five or fifty like minute um, episodes, so they were kind of like put together and. Genesis, as usual, was quite truncated and only put down to like two 50-minute episodes. Uh, so, like, there wasn't much cut out of Peladon or Earthshock, but obviously Genesis was quite shortened, um, probably taking uh, its cue from the uh, 1975 Christmas repeat there. So, um, this is... I, I really do like this story. It's, it's I would say probably it's my favourite out of this season, um, just because obviously it was one one of my like, first John Pertwee stories that I saw, and I love like the analogy, obviously because you know of, uh, Great Britain moving into the the European Union, you know it's doing that woke and political thing that Doctor Who never did in the past. <laughs> <laughs> they all say on Twitter when they're moaning about uh, the current series. But yeah, um, can I just say um, before we go into the story in more depth, just how wonderful the new restoration is for mm-hmm. the picture. Um, the way they've obviously just um, really, really spruced it up and managed to combine the colour signal with um, the restored black and white prints. So you haven't got that kind of like NTSC glaze over the picture that you used to have because they were previously converted american episodes so I, I was just amazed at how well i mean it almost it looks like a 625 pal picture now and it looks like as it obviously was originally tr- transmitted so well done to the restoration team for just how well they've restored these this uh, the sea devils and uh, i think the mutants and the time monster you know the rest of the season is, has been really restored back to its old um you know, original picture. So fantastic work from them there. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I started watching it fully expecting that kind of fuzziness that, um, that, that yeah, I've always associated with this story. And it, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely beautiful. So US Jason, you said this is your favourite story of the season or the one that you only think is the best uh, out of all of them. So, um, you know, when did you first see this and what made you form that opinion? I would have seen this in 1985 when it first hit the States. I would have been 12, no, 11 going on 12. And then when I was 
watching the series back in 1990 when I would have been 16 going on 17, which is a song lyric, by the way. When I was 16 going on 17, I just love this, and I can tell you why. It's because I had grown up over my mother's shoulder with my mother being a major league Anglophile, and she was watching all these British dramas that were broadcast on PBS in the States under the Masterpiece Theater and Mystery umbrellas. So this was exactly the kind of thing my mother would have watched about how colonies fared under the yoke of the British Empire. So the one thing that I don't get is if this is an allegory for England entering the common market, who is Peladon as a country supposed to be? Are they supposed to represent the UK, the biggest empire in the history of the universe, or is the UK supposed to be the, the, the big bad federation? That's a little unclear to me, but I love the saber rattling in the story. I love that you have the doctor is on the back foot. He really doesn't interact with anybody in parts one and part two. He doesn't trust the ice warriors. You have all this ambiguity because you don't know until the resolution of the part three cliffhanger that the ice warriors are actually good guys in this. You have the debates between Hepesh and Torbus. You have Patrick, Patrick Troughton's son, David Troughton, gives a tremendous performance as the young king, and he has terrific chemistry with Katie Manning, and of course it turns out they were dating at the time, so that would explain that. And there's this amazing shot somewhere in part two or part three of all of the delegates lined up. You have Arcturus, who's a green blob in a box. You have the Ice Warriors, who are green. And then you have Alpha Centauri, who's green. And all these three are on screen at the same time. And I'm sure this is where Terrence Sticks got his famous quote, the color for aliens is always green. I am sure it is because of that particular still. Every monster in the story is green, except for Agador. So this is just a fun story to watch minute by minute. It's got a lot of really interesting things that Doctor Who hadn't done before. I also covered the novelization on Doctor Who Literature Episode 11 with frequent Trap One guest Ross Aiken from Gallifrey's Most Wanted. I think the novelization is a little bit overwritten. I think Brian Hales put the pedal a little bit too far down on the adjective button. But Ross says that it plays very well when it's read as an audio book by David Trout. So he's much fonder of the book than I am. And the book does, to its credit, have a lot of missing scenes that were not either filmed or edited out of television. So there's a lot more connective tissue in the book, particularly around the part three cliffhanger and the resolution of. So I think this holds up really well, even though I'm watching this from uh, the U.S. rather than the U.K., and I just really enjoy all of it. Of course, the um, of course, yes, Britain had an empire, but by the early 70s, it didn't have one anymore. It's got a Commonwealth, but uh, so yeah, I think the allegory stands up very well. That uh, you know, Peladon, it's got a history and it's got a lot of protocol and traditions around it, and yeah, it, you look at it and you think, yeah, that is the United Kingdom or even England to be even yeah. closer, perhaps, but. Uh, yeah, I was a bit young to remember all of that, all of that going into the uh, common market thing. But uh, gosh, do I remember coming out of it? Oh, gosh, we should do another uh, Paladin uh, story. Yeah. Then. <laughs> well, I think Mark, Mark Gates originally pitched that when he did the the Empress of Mars. I think. Oh, um, right. 
that was that was part of the original thinking and then even later drafts had had sort of references to that that the doctor made reference to peladon and uh yeah. and and how uh you know they were doing well until they <laughs> they sort of messed up and uh, left the federation so uh but yeah i think in the end uh it was maybe a little bit too raw at, at that time when uh when, when that story was made yeah because that would have been just after the vote wouldn't it yeah yeah the 1994 <laughs> new adventure legacy by gary russell is the threequel to Peladon. It follows on 50 years after Monster of Peladon. And that novel, spoiler for a 28-year-old book, so hit the uh, 29-year-old book, hit the 30-second skip button if you don't want to hear this bit. But that novel, uh, Gary Russell's New Adventure Legacy, ends with Brexit, ends with Peladon leaving the Federation. And I'm sure in 1994 he thought that was a great idea, but I'm sure he would happily do that one over again if he could. There are some big Finnish Peladon stories that were released in the last year or so, aren't there? I haven't listened there's to them. There's a box set. Yet, yeah. Yeah, yeah so there's, when, uh, there's some good stories in that. Yeah, so when did you first see this story, Mark? Would it be UK Gold? I think it was I think it was the VHS. Um, um it may it may have been UK Gold. I think I was pretty young when I saw it because I think I loved it just because of the number of monsters in it, as as, <laughs> as it's saying. Um, that's you know when you were a kid is what, and and still now to some extent I suppose is uh, is is what uh, you know really appeals about a story. Just seeing so many different alien races. There's, there's not that many Doctor Who stories, particularly in the 20th century series, where you get to see so many monsters in one story. Is that um, so? So that's that's really cool. It's like uh, it's like Doctor Who's cantina scene, isn't it? Um, but stretched over four episodes. So I love that. And like you say, it's doing things it had never done before in terms of having a returning monster who isn't the villain in that, which, you know, kind of confounds both the Doctor and the viewer's expectations, which is really good. And uh, and it's, it's a great story for Joe as well, uh, like, you, like you were saying there, with um, with her scenes with King Peladon and, uh, you know, the way she... Uh, the way she gets just those scenes alone with him and stuff. It's a, it's, it's a great companion story as well, I think. And obviously besides the, the excellent model work by Ian Schoons, they, it's virtually a, a studio production. So, you know, it's, it does, I think, that good thing that all BBC productions kind of like do, it, it plays to its strengths with, yes, there's, there's kind of like standard corridors, but then also the BBC, as well as doing like period dramas was also good at like building caves in studios and stuff like that so it all kind of and it does have that medieval vibe as well doesn't it so it does play to the production design strength as i think that's another reason why it probably is fondly remembered because it it looks very very good yeah it's it's, you could do an alien planet do it in that style rather than uh like the sky base or something like that which is always gonna uh kind of look a bit cheap and, and date very quickly isn't it so uh yeah i think yeah, it's spaceships and space stations in doctor who never never look as good as but yeah if you're gonna do an alien planet it's like like reboss or uh you know androids of tower or anything make it make it a sort of uh kind of a quite a retro planet and it, it's always gonna look great with the with the capabilities of, of the bbc and there's some nice continuity with the story as well isn't there because you've got the return of alan bennion and Sonny Caldez as the Ice Warriors, um, you know, which that kind of like, you know, I don't think would have been probably, you know, a regular thing back in back in the day. Like, you know, that's certainly somebody who, uh, like monsters who were portrayed in what last nineteen sixty eight. 
you know, mm. that they would have brought them back like four years later to then play similar parts. Uh, so it's, it's a nice bit of continuity there from the production team. Yeah, and a completely different production team, as you say, from from the last yeah. appearance. So, yeah, it's quite nice that's carried over. So with this one, we've got a lovely um, kind of like just – there's no real new features um, on the disc. Um, most of it's ported over from uh, the original DVD release. Um, so you do have like stuff that's really nice, like John and Katie featurette and stuff like that. And obviously the, the making of documentary that was made for the original uh, DVD – but it is nice that they do put um, the DVD versions of the episodes on um, to give you that comparison of just how well the uh, the picture has been restored. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, a few of these stories have multiple versions, don't they? It's quite nice. You've got the sort of like the movie length ones. You've got the special editions, the DVD editions. It's uh, means that there's yeah, so much choice and variety on these sets. I think David would have good grounds to kick me out if I watched three versions of the same story <laughs> <laughs> on the same evening or over the same couple of days. He'd be like, this one again. You know, it's like, it'd be like Groundhog Day for him, the poor chap. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying the new versions and sometimes I watch a special edition but not always but uh, yes it's um, it's good to have like they're thinking from the completest point of view and of course Doctor Who fans are nothing if not completist yeah exactly in terms of yeah you, there's no need to keep your DVDs if you don't want to mm. um, but by you know when you uh, when you sort of upgrade to the to the blu-ray collection is there because I think they, I mean, they've promised that everything's going to move over that's that's been on the uh, on, on the DVD sets um, but yeah even the inferior quality versions of the stories uh, if you can't bear to lose them you, you've still got those as well <laughs> So moving on to uh, uh, a little uh, hijinks on the, the North Sea <laughs> as we uh, joined the Royal Navy. And again, it's our third returning monster, if we can call them that, although they're technically cousins of the Silurians. Uh, we have the Sea Devils, uh, which was um, another great story from Malcolm Hulk. A bit more probably simplistic than the Doctor Who and the Silurian story. Um, but still a, a really good romp, nevertheless. What's uh, everybody else's opinion of the of the tale? This is the one that improved the most in my estimation during my pilgrimage two years ago, and it is probably now my favorite story out of the entire season because when I was a kid with no knowledge of the Royal Navy, I didn't really get the structure of the episode when you have this naval captain who is the replacement for the brigadier, and a lot of it is just, you know, location footage, which, you know, for me as, as a child and a young adult, watching location footage of diving bells and extras marching around in sailor uniforms was a very little interest to me. But I think this is stunningly well-directed. The location footage looks incredible, especially when it's been cleaned up digitally for for the DVD release. And... This is basically the beginning of the idea that a six-part story is a four-parter and a two-parter put together. Parts one through four is about as good as Doctor Who ever gets because you have the Master and Katie Manning and Roger Delgado 
all at the top of their game. The actor who plays Governor Trenchard gives a terrific, naturalistic, sad performance. And this is the kind of thing that Doctor Who doesn't do anymore, because ever since Graham Williams, uh, the human villain in any episode is going to be big and blustering and larger than life and chewing the scenery. And that's been pretty much the standard ever since, all the way up through the new series. You don't see roles like Trenchard anymore. And he's in parts one through four. He's incredible. This is where you have the Doctor and the Master sword fighting, and the Doctor pauses to have a bite of a sandwich. This is where the Master is watching Clangers, which Russell T. Davies stole for the new series. This is where the Doctor and Joe are miming to one another through a glass window to arrange an escape attempt, which Russell T. Davies stole for the new series. <laughs> so this, this, this story has everything in it. I think it is let down by parts five and six, which take place on the Sea Devil base. We also covered this on Doctor Who Literature in Episode 9, and that was Fraser Gregory's first appearance on Doctor Who Literature. And he and I both, possibly the only time we've been on the same page, both loving uh, the same story and book in absolute equal measure. In the book, Malcolm Hulk spends about half the book just on Parts 1 and Part 2, and he adds a prologue and he adds a lot of nuance to certain scenes. He covers Parts 5 and 6 in just 20 pages, which is basically 10 pages per episode, and he cuts out a lot of material. And it just goes to show that he was a lot more interested in the setup than the resolution, having already told the story two years earlier. So this is definitely front-loaded. The best stuff is in parts one through four. But I think the stuff that's there is so, so good that it does make it my favorite of the season now, just slightly ahead of Peladon. I think it's my favourite of the season as well. Um, and I think it's because I had a child, partly because I had a childhood thing of, of watching it weekly, uh, which really, uh, really stuck with me. And also, yeah, it's just, it's a cracking good kind of adventure story, isn't it? I think you can see why they chose this one for the BFI screening the, for the, for this uh, this collection release. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the one that would look the most impressive on the big screen. Obviously, a lot of it's shot on film and location everything. You've got tons of extras because you had uh, Navy personnel um, who were you know, playing some of the soldiers and getting involved as well. And then, yeah, the hovercraft and the diving bell and all that kind of stuff just, just yeah, makes it look uh, like a much bigger budget production because the Navy lent them it all. Um, and I, I think the Doctor, it's partly because of John Pertwee's naval career before he was an actor or just there's a lot of good acting as well, but... He, the way the Doctor is so comfortable around all that stuff is is really cool as well. That uh, well, I mean, for him, it's primitive technology, I guess. But yeah, the, you know, he's just getting in the diving bell and he's uh, he's kind of doing all this stuff. And then um, the bit which you know we learn on the um, uh, on one of the one of the behind the scenes things when they when they're rescued from the water at the end, him and the master. Uh, and I think you can, t- you know the story, but you can also tell it, Roger, that Gardner <laughs> is really uncomfortable um, in the uh, floating there in that in that suit. Um, but yeah, it's just just stuff like that you, you've never seen before in Doctor Who, like actually being in the sea and the ocean and everything and uh, having all that cool equipment. But yeah, and then yeah, the Doctor and the Master's relationship, visiting him in prison, and there's still some warmth between them at that point. All that is is you know not what you've really seen before, and. Um, Stephen Moffat stole for uh, for Missy in the in the vault. <laughs> As uh, we're talking about, uh, we're, we're talking about future showrunners stealing stuff there, Jason. <laughs> Did you see the um, scene that was filmed when they were fil- showing the Sea Devils at the BFI? The bit with the clangers and like the whole 
audience absolutely erupts and screams <laughs> and they're bouncing up and down and they're having the most amazing time, you know, because it gets such a reaction. There's there's the master trying to mimic the clang language. <laughs> I mean, bless him, eh? But, uh, it, it is great. Yeah. Obviously, I think we could all say, like, probably the over the whole master thing in season eight, you know, the fact that it was a recurring villain in every single story. So the fact that he's not been in the show for... I mean, obviously, because if you look at it from when it was broadcast, you've got the six-month gap between the seasons and then you've got two stories. So perhaps it would might have been a shock to the audience for the Master not to have appeared in Day of the Daleks or The Curse of Peladon. So now that he pops up in this, I think that's probably a nice little thing then for the, that audience as they were watching on broadcast. Um you know, and, and Roger Delgado is sublime as, as always. You know, um, he's got such a way with uh, his acting and, and his words. You know, you could read the phone book and you'd still be probably me- mesmerised by his voice. Um, and I remember, again, like uh, you, Mark, this is how I watched the story. It was, uh, I don't think it had been released on VHS yet and I hadn't seen it on UK Gold so that those BBC Two Friday night repeats after they'd um, shown stuff like Thunderbirds, which had uh, was was taking off again, it was really a nice little like cult hour, you know. Um, from six o'clock, you got like Thunderbirds, and then you got like uh, like two or what would have been ours like new episodes of Doctor Who, you know, because it wasn't on television at that. Time. Yeah, it was great to see it from a weekly point of view, and uh, I didn't watch the six part version the broadcast version uh for this i actually um watched the reconstructed omnibus version which is based on um the repeat that they put out later on in in the year um which no longer exists in the archive and um i thought it was really well put and again it, it does that great thing that like uh, us jason said it takes out the bits that are not needed and you still have a very coherent you know, rip-roaring adventure, that's now 90 minutes instead of, like, you know, two hours and and, and 50 minutes. So, uh, yeah, so the omnibus version was uh, is, a, is a good little extra to have, I think, on this disc. And the Location, Location, Location documentary, again, uh, has Michael E. Bryant and Katie Manning going to the Isle of Wight and revisiting some of the locations, and it just looks beautiful. I've never been to the Isle of Wight, but it, it really makes me want to visit it. It looks uh, it looks absolutely amazing, particularly the castle that's kind of on the top of those cliffs, where that that was that they used for the prison. Uh, I don't know if it, well, it didn't seem like maybe it was a particular place you could visit because it seemed like it was undergoing some renovations when they were there. But uh, yeah, if it's somewhere you can just sort of like kind of walk along and see it, it's uh, yeah, it looks absolutely gorgeous. I think in the making of documentary, it's still owned by somebody who shows them around and shows them Katie Manning's window and everything. But then coming back for location, 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 it's something of a ruin. Um, I think the guy was quite elderly. And so it looks like, I I don't know if it needs to be converted into a hotel or something, but it's, um, Mm. it's gone downhill a lot. It's not owned or lived in at the moment or it wasn't at the time as far as we can see i have been to the isle of wight but it was some pretty miserable days in the early part of the year and that all i mean they had beautiful sunny days and they went to the bits with the beaches and 
you know, it does look like a great place to go for mm. for a nice British holiday. But, uh, when I was there, <laughs> it was a bit sort of grim, you know, it was early 90s and it's like, you know, it's not far yeah. from the UK mainland, but it doesn't have like the same shops as the UK mainland. You can't find a Boots <laughs> or a WH Smiths or anything like that. But, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's nice. And I think uh, at the time you got a hovercraft over there as well. So you got to go on a hovercraft to visit, cool. which you no longer do. But, and we've also got, I mean, you, as usual, we've, Besides, like, you know, um, there's not many new extras. We've got the Defenders of the Earth mini episode, which they used to announce the, the um, this season nine box set, which you can also obviously view on the Dots Who channel uh, on YouTube, which is nice to see uh, Katie Manning back as Joe Jones. Um, so that was the, uh, and written and directed by Pete McTeague, I believe, who's been, who, who writes all these kind of like little mini uh, episodes that they do for the collection set. So that's a nice little thing that we've got this um to um kind of like close the circle as it were for the the sea devil story and uh, we've got denise's favorite feature of the whole collection box set the michael e bryant documentary yeah well i mean he just you know sitting on the sofa with katie and they had such a lovely rapport and he just seems such a warm and nice man. And yes, he's had an amazing career, absolutely worthy of respect, the things that he's been involved with. Yeah. I had no idea. And, um, and yeah, he just comes across as such a nice guy and he loves pootling around in boats and he's got sort of modest but pretty nice little boat that he loves going around in. And it's, you know, just seems like he's a man who's, had an amazing life and a brilliant career, obviously a very, very gifted director. And he's a nice guy as well. Yeah, and like most directors, he's uh, of that era, he kind of like started out similar to Barry Letts, didn't he, as an actor, and then like moved his way into the behind the scenes kind of side of it. And obviously, uh, still, obviously, he knew Barry Letts as an actor as well. So they kind of like were you know actors at the same time so that friendship then carried on obviously and led to obviously you know stuff like you know getting uh, the Doctor Who directing gigs and and he's what I love about him when he's talking is especially in the behind the sofa um, stuff when he's talking to Katie he points out particular shots oh well that's that's a dolly shot there and and that's a like a zoom shot there and he's so I love the fact that he, he's he's technical with his explanations but he's not he's doing it for the layman who won't particularly know what these kind of shots are and obviously he's like explaining it to Katie that's that's really good having cameos from uh, US Jason's cat on the (laughs) (laughs) yeah your cat loves you Jason I mean just can't get enough of you, can she? And you're she just can, her around she the can see herself you know, she in the little to... Zencaster window, which is the preview for my video. And she spends a lot of time looking at herself. And then, like the Marsh Child in Part Three of Full Circle, she's trying <laughs> to get through the monitor to visit other cat. <laughs> so every so often, her feet will step on the keyboard and start <laughs> opening windows and threaten to shut Zencaster. So I've got to either spritz her off or pick her up and move her out of the way. I did a Doctor Who literature recording a couple of years ago where she actually managed to power down the laptop with her back foot 
and it cost me <laughs> 10 minutes of recording time. So, yeah, Smudge and this computer are definitely two peas in a pod. <laughs> it's great to have so so many contributions from from Michael E. Bryant on this set because he's on he's on the sofa and he's on the yeah. location 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 documentary as well. I haven't watched the the film Michael E. Bryant at the helm because of my commitment to the Maximum Power podcast. Uh, Sai warned me that there are uh, spoilers for Blake Seven in that documentary, so I haven't watched it on the basis that I'm participating in Maximum Power, and my kind of role is to be the person who's never seen Blake Seven before. So I'm watching kind of each episode as we go through. Um, but yeah, if you're a Blake Seven fan, do check out the Maximum Power podcast. We've the first two series have been released. We're currently recording series C, um, but um, Pete and Sai of, of Trap One Fame and Maximum Power Fame interviewed Michael E. Bryant between uh, Series A and Series B of Maximum Power. So do check out that. It's a two-part interview where he talks about his work on Blake 7, and uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. I think he's uh, he's got that brilliant combination of what you need for, for people, f- you know, for these kind of uh, documentaries and interviews. Is He's really willing to take part. He's, he's really uh, kind of a warm you know, interesting guy, and he's got incredible recollections of the things that he made uh, for you know, fifty years ago. Um, you know, where, where there's a lot of, I guess, kind of industry professionals like that, it would have been a job, and they would have moved on. But his passion really shines through because he can remember so much of, of what he did, and I think that shows how much effort he put in at the time. There's a very funny bit, uh, I think, in part two of Sea Devils, where he plays the voice of the radio DJ that the doctor tunes into. And the doctor turns off the radio and Joe goes, hey, that was my favorite DJ talking about Michael E. Bryant's voice. So it's actually worked into the text of the story how much everybody loved him. He came to the last galley before the pandemic in Los Angeles, February 2020. was just standing in the lobby talking to everybody, just a delightful, humble, unassuming man who did great work for Doctor Who and is still happy to talk about it. It's just a great thing to have somebody like that still involved with fandom. And of course he appeared on maximum power himself for a two part episode last year. Yeah, definitely. Definitely check that out. Yeah. And he's got such a, a large body of work. You know, he did work with Barry Letts on the classic serials. And I think he, um, you know, treasure Island is uh, one of his favorites uh, that he's worked on as well. Uh, you know, because obviously they used to do the Sunday classic serials back in the late 70s and into like the 80s kind of thing that you don't really get on uh, television any anymore uh, when they kind of like do uh, prestigious big uh, you know productions now. um so you know it's great that he's got such a, a wide and varied career he didn't just get pigeonholed as a doctor who director like a few um, of the directors from the classic series did. Um, but, yeah, he's an absolute delight. And, you know, you, you, he's, as we say, he's so knowledgeable and uh, he's got such a good um, memory um, of obviously, you know, what happened back then and, you know, and he's got some great stories. Um, and obviously he's, he's one of his best stories is the Revenge of the Cyberman story, isn't it, when they were filming down in Wookiee Hole and he saw the the, the ghost of the diver uh, you know, I absolutely loved that story. You know that he, he tells. You know, of um, you know, he, you know his experiences with the show. So it, it's great that he's still with us and that he's still like able to contribute to uh, these sets. 
So moving on to the planet Solus next, as we um, go to uh, a mission for the Time Lords again, uh, the second of the series, uh, as Joe and the Doctor end up uh, with the Mutants, uh, which is uh, a Bob Baker and Dave Martin story, their only contribution to uh, this season, and uh, directed by veteran director Christopher Barry as well. Um, this one's got a bit of a kind of like a mixed bag, hasn't it? Some people like it, some people don't. It's kind of like one of those middling stories that it's thought of, even though it's got a very, very worthy kind of um, political subtext with the whole like kind of like South Africa or the uh, the Indian kind of like uh, analogies that it's got. Um, I think we covered this in the Bob Baker um, tribute um, podcast, didn't we, in, in quite some detail when we were talking about uh, their, his stories uh, and reviewing them one by one. So, and also Jason and I have talked about the mutants before as well on Jason's uh, Doctor Who Literature podcast. So, This is the last story of season nine that has been covered on Doctor Who Literature so far because I'm going in publication order. I'm only on book 76. So the Time Monster novelization is not going to be covered on my show for another six months or so. But episode 35, Denise was my guest for The Mutants. It was a terrific episode. Uh, maybe, Mark, you can put a link to that one in the show notes. It's the only Doctor Who liter- literature episode of the season with a Trap One guest <laughs> battle in it. <laughs> so it's got two of us. Um, I think The Mutants yeah, – we're, we're not watching these stories 50 years later because we want to be surprised by the plot. We're not going to discover new elements to the story. We already know what's going to happen. We are not watching these things for the revelations. We're watching it for the tone and for the character moments. If you set aside the plot and if you set aside the fact that this is not Christopher Barry's best job as director, if you're just watching it for tone and dialogue and acting, there is a lot of fun elements to the mutants. So I enjoy it a lot more than the sum of its parts. So number one, this is a very, very – political story you talk about colonialism independence ecology climate change man's impact upon climate change and there's also a bit in episode six talking about a riot caused by nationalism was this written in 1972 or 2023 so the politics makes it woke on the one hand, which is going to alienate all those grumpy middle-aged men who want Doctor Who to be like the way it was in their imagination. <laughs> it, it makes it because These are all political issues that we are still dealing with today. You could show this story to Greta Thunberg. You could show this story after any number of nationalist riots around the world, and it really holds up and is very, very sharp. You have the Doctor and Paul Whitson-Jones have some terrific scenes together as antagonists. You have Jeffrey Palmer, who was still doing Doctor Who as recently as uh, Voyage of the Dam during the RTD era. He has a really good role in part one, and you assume he's going to be the hero of the piece, and then he's shockingly killed off at the end of part one. That's a nice little bit of playing against expectations. Joe Grant is really coming into her own. And yeah, there's some not-so-good performances 
among the guest cast. James Meller, I think, doesn't really bring out the tragedy of Varen, and a lot has been said about Rick James, so I'm not going to pile on that particular bit. And the direction at the part for Cliffhanger doesn't make any sense, but there's a lot of fun and truthful moments to this story, and there's a lot of great sharp lines of dialogue. And we learn from the DVD production notes, which I imagine are ported over onto the Blu-ray, Terrence Dix rewrote most of this himself. Most of the plot twists and a lot of the sharper lines of dialogue were his own invention. So even though he's very self-deprecating, it says on the audio commentary, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. No, he was definitely, I think, very much involved in making this story as political and as memorable as it was. And that really comes through in the novelization as well. Yes, it's one of those stories where I was familiar with the novelization and I loved it. I thought it was a great story. So, of course, the realization on the screen was a little bit of a disappointment for me. Um, you know, what happens to Kai is in your head is always going to be better than what they were able to realize on the screen. It's funny how that... It's funny how the Salonian gem manages to dispense glittery cloaks... So when Kai transforms, he's given a wardrobe by that Salonian gem. If you could transport that to America, you would disrupt the fashion industry. <laughs> this is one I remember more from the novelization as well, because it, it's such a great idea of you know, these people turning into mutants, but then that turns out to be a natural part of their of their evolution. And that really stuck with me as just a really strong central idea from the book. To the extent that I, I definitely would have seen the next the Star Trek the Next Generation episode, which has the same storyline. I'm not enough of a Star Trek fan to remember the name of it because I only watched them once in the nineties when they were on here. I should have asked Sai or somebody before <laughs> before we recorded. But I'm sure there's a Star Trek Next Generation episode where the same sort of thing where people on the planet are changing and they think there's something wrong with them, but it just turns out to be a sort of a, a natural evolution thing and they they do turn into quite sort of uh advanced super beings if uh, if i remember rightly so i remember being quite outraged from my knowledge of the book of the mutants that they'd uh, that they'd ripped that off like they did with the borg of the cybermen as well which was uh, <laughs> another, <laughs> uh, another thing that annoyed me in the 90s as a, as a kid <laughs> uh, but yeah it's uh, it, it's a kind of a mixed bag you say on, on screen because some bits do look really good the bits in the caves shot on film and everything that bit where um Kai and Joe are in the cave and the mutant is outside and the fireworks are going off. Just looks amazing. It's uh it's a real and, and that is the clip that you always see from this story, isn't it? Because it does look such a striking uh, kind of visual thing. It's it's kind of weird and colourful and and exciting and everything. Uh, and again, this is placed on the location, location, location documentary. They go back to those caves, which are actually two different sets of caves, because there was the ones that they use for the entrance, but they're quite shallow. And then there's the other caves that they go to, which go on for miles and miles and miles, and they have to have a guide with them and everything. And uh, they, um, the, the guide, he seems to have a bit of knowledge of Doctor Who uh, as well, doesn't he? He's, uh, and it seemed like these stories have maybe pa been passed down through the, the different guides that have worked there because he knows, oh, this is a bit where John Pertwee sort of climbed up uh, into this kind of vertical shaft and things. And then you see that those symbols are still on the wall from all those years ago when they filmed it and that they'd uh, they'd left some bits and pieces behind as well that they that they'd built for it so yeah it's kind of a, a weird kind of archaeology in there of uh, doctor who's past that's chiselhurst isn't it i think that's so yeah where it was yeah i've never been there but uh, 
you know, having lived so long in the south of England, but I never actually went to Chislehurst Caves. <laughs> it's definitely a mixed bag, obviously, from, like, if you look from a production point of view. The film stuff, like you say, Mark, looks absolutely brilliant, really atmospheric, apart from the beginning of episode one, which looks like the beginning of a Monty Python episode with the old it man. Does. <laughs> Struggling <laughs> through the fog, you <laughs> like, it's... And then the theme to like his Besides that, it looks really good. The studio stuff is a little bit kind of like I don't know the budget's kind of like running out by this point of the series. It's the those stock walls for the for the, the the station, isn't it? And you know they wobble on a, on occasions. So it's it's just a little bit of a shame that kind of like it doesn't kind of like meet the expectations of, of what the story is wanting to do but as Doctor fans we always like kind of like you know brush over those kind of details don't we well yeah when you've got interesting ideas you've got sparkling dialogue between particularly the doctor and joe grant you've got interesting relationships you've got um Sondergaard in the caves who's a absolutely mm-hmm. incredible character you know, with the sacrifice that he makes in a way to, to be down there and to help the mutants to, once he realises what their destiny is, to actually help them to achieve it. And it's interesting, like you, you um, US Jason said, that Terence Dix did a lot of like rewriting of this story um, because Bob Baker always used to kind of like single this story out as one that he was the most proud of. And I think we talked about that in the Bob Baker tribute. So it's interesting, like obviously how like it shows Bob Baker wasn't particularly too precious over the material, or perhaps I like, just misremembered that a lot of it had been rewritten by Terence Dick at the time, because um, obviously you know it's that kind of like thing that a showrunner will do. We know that Russell T Davis rewrote an awful lot of series one to four of the episodes that weren't penned directly by him, but then obviously doesn't take a co-story credit or anything like that. So I just thought that was quite interesting. That um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the Terran Sticks like, rewriting major parts of it. That was just an issue with Bob Baker and Dave Martin in general. They would submit scripts that were full of ideas and massively over length, and Terrence only has 25 minutes, two of which is opening and closing credits. So he has to do a lot of streamlining and restructuring of their ideas, which are too broad and re- I'll say that again, too broad and deep for the small screen. They're the ideas guys. Terence is the storytelling guy. So they have to work together to turn their scripts into something arable. And of course, it has some great design by uh, James Aitchison. Uh, the Mutt design turned up uh, a couple of years later, didn't it? Uh, being reused for um, uh, the brain of Morbius for the opening moments, which I always found a little bit peculiar, as in you've got, was it actually meant to be a mutt from Solos? And and if so, how were they able to pilot spaceships (laughs) as they were transforming? (laughs) Because they're not seen as quite, um, you know, um, sentient as what you would expect. Like, you know, you needed to, pilot a spaceship for that but i presume they just picked the costume up and and used it because it was available in 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 the costume department yeah but then the doctor says poor mutt doesn't he so if he hadn't said that you can maybe think oh it's just a similar species but he does actually (laughs) they do actually got the trouble of naming it 
So with this one, um, there's not much that's ported over um, or that's new. It's, it's standard, like the DVD kind of uh, thing. So it's, it's special features that we're all kind of like fully familiar with. If you've got the DVDs, uh, there's a great uh, documentary on, which was really good at, at the time when it was first uh, released, which is obviously covers diversity in, in Doctor Who, uh, which I felt probably could have come with a, a little bit of an update. Um, because it was filmed like quite some time ago, and obviously those kind of things have, have, have moved on. Um, I think mm-hmm. even more so uh, in like you know twenty twenty three. But yeah, it, it's it's good a selection of features there. I think. So we move on to the final story of the season, and uh, probably not quite the season finale that viewers or fans. <laughs> may expect uh, with today's expectations. It's not the grand kind of like a high adventure that you'd normally get at the end of a season. Um, yeah, it's the uh, beloved time. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go on record um, uh, saying that the, I thought this was the worst Doctor Who story of all time. Um I, well, I know, I know. And I know, obviously, you've got so many great elements of it. It's a unit story. It's got the unit family. And I think it's pointed out um, by Toby Hadoki that this is the final story uh, that you get to see all the unit regulars in the very, like, together. Because um, after this, obviously, Roger Delgado will make another appearance, but he's not. he doesn't appear with the unit family. And then you've got stories where Richard Franklin isn't with, um, you know, the Brigadier or with Joe or, or Benton. So it's kind of like it's the last, like, great hurrah for that close-knit family. Um, but, yeah, I saw this when it was released on video in the Master Box set with the Colony in Space. And, uh, you know... I was really disappointed in it. I don't know if it's the it's the it's the low budget. Atlantis looks like it's a tiny little studio. It's not like a vast like kind of like you know city that you would expect Doctor Who could do these days. And Kronos is, as they describe in the extras, is kind of like a big white budgerigar flapping its wings like in the studio. Um, what does everybody else think of this stuff? <laughs> I love it. I love it, and I'll explain why. I got the novelization first. Novelization comes out probably around 1985. When you're just reading the book, it's wonderful because you're not worried about over-the-top acting or low budget. Secondly, if you're watching 1970s Doctor Who for (laughs) budget and sets, you're watching the wrong show. This is not the one Doctor Who story that is let down by Atlantis not looking the way that it would in a 1960s Elizabeth Taylor epic four-hour Hollywood movie. You have to just accept the, accept the visual shorthand and move on. This is Roger Delgado. Usually Roger Delgado's character was Silky Menace. In this story, he decides to go the full Anthony Ainley. I mean, yes, it is stupid. He, he was going to take a powerful being back to Atlantis. What did he think was going to happen? Where did he ever foresee a timeline where that was going to end happily for him? He knows what happens to Atlantis. So, yeah, that part of it might not work. But look at it this way. I grew up in the States, all right? In the 1980s, sitcoms took place basically on two sets. 98% of Cheers is set either in the bar or in Sam Malone's office. 
if you're watching any run-of-the-mill 1980s sitcom that ran for years and years, most of it takes place in the family living room or in one of the characters' bedrooms or in the kitchen. This story begins in a unit lab and it ends in Atlantis. Most other TV shows are not doing that kind of incredible jump in storytelling. And that is a tribute to Barry Letts, because Barry Letts was doing two episodes every two weeks. So you rehearse episodes one and two, you shoot episodes one and two on back-to-back days. Two weeks later, you rehearse three and four back-to-back, you shoot three and four on back-to-back days. So that makes Time Monster three two-part stories in a row. And Roger Delgado has three companions in the first three episodes. He has Ruth in episode one, he has Dr. Percival in episode two, he has Crossus in episode three. You have to love the idea that the master, when auditing a doctoral student to work for him in his time travel experiments, picks an ardent feminist who is going to yell at him every five minutes about the, quote, bland assumption of male superiority. That is awesome, all right? That is just absolutely phenomenal. And then you have the unit family stuff. John Levine is given a huge role, and except for the bit where he's shirtless, he pretty much knocks it out of the park. And when you meet him in person, it's disappointing because you want the real John Levine, John Levine, to be like Sergeant Benton. And unfortunately, in the flesh, he really isn't. And then we talk about John Pertwee's moments of charm, that whole monologue in part six about the daisiest daisy. How could you not love that? And that is Barry Letts setting up John Pertwee's death scene two years later because the actor who plays King Dalios, who's in the Daisiest Daisy scene where the doctor's talking about his guru, comes back and plays the doctor's guru in Planet of the Spiders. That's some pretty assassin-level plotting, which most other Doctor Who stories were not trying to do. They weren't consciously setting up a piece that was going to pay off two years later. But Barry Letts, who co-wrote this, gets there before anyone else. Yes, it's a comedy Some people seem to have a problem with that. I think when Doctor Who gets overly comic, you have problems. But I think here, because we love this cast and we're already more than halfway through the Pertwee era, and we love all of these actors, John and Katie and Nicholas Courtney and even John Levine and Richard Franklin, and of course Roger Delgado, seeing all these guys together is a wonderful experience. So when they're having fun, I'm having fun. You could objectively criticize the story, and the discontinuity guy did. They said the story is like watching paint dry while being whipped with barbed wire. It's boring and painful <laughs> at the same time. That's very unfair. Uh, yeah, it's not the best Pertwee-era story, but it doesn't have to be. It's just a lot of fun to watch minute by minute. And then on top of all that, you have Ingrid Pitt. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some lovely moments, and Ingrid Pitt is splendid, isn't she? I mean, she she has a she has a pussy cat who hangs around as well, doesn't she? <laughs> I think there are there are moments I absolutely love in the story. the The master's line, "No, Sergeant Benton, this is the oldest trick in the book," <laughs> is is brilliant. I think uh, Simmer Down Stew, because uh, I love a pun, is great. And it's almost just thrown away, that one as well. You don't sort of, uh, it kind of takes you a moment to realize what she said. <laughs> uh, so, so that's a great line. And uh, yeah, you can tell the, the cast are having a lot of fun with it as well, I think, which uh, which does, does help you to enjoy it. 
the the whole interaction between Ruth and Stu, their their relationship t- together, and uh, it's such fun, you know, sort of nice, intelligent characters um, that aren't connected to unit, aren't they're just doing their thing, they're sep- off being sciencey all on their own, you know. I thought that was really good. I mean, a bit of a stretch to believe that Stu was only <laughs> twenty five. I mean, people. People aged differently in the seventies, didn't they? He had a, he had some city miles on him. He was forty if he was a day. All that whiskey sure. and cigarettes yeah. that he used to consume. I do like his line where he says, "I'm a card carrying a bona fide coward." So you know, yeah. and he goes like like US Jason said, you know, the the John Pertwee moments of charm, the daisiest daisy. You know, yes, yeah, I used to think this story was the worst story of all time, but rewatching it. I still don't think it's that much cop, and there are obviously better stories. But as with every single Doctor Who story, and this is why I love the show so much, even in the worst stories, there are still, as you say, moments of charm, brilliant scenes, brilliant dialogue, brilliant, you know, elements of it that you can, you will always like sit down and find something to enjoy even in the worst episodes. And I think that still sums up probably like how I feel about the Time Monster. Yes, it's never going to be one that I will actively pick off the shelf if I've got an idea of like, oh, I want to watch a John Pertwee story, you know, this evening. But it has elements to it that are wonderful. It's Mm -hmm. just, for me, it doesn't come across over as like a complete whole but then there's a lot of Doctor Who stories in the whole of the, the classic series and also in the new series as well that also don't do that but you still enjoy them because you still have moments where you go I enjoyed that even though I didn't think the story was much got you know and I think you see Robert Sloman's name on it you automatically are expecting something good because of like the previous seasons, the demons. And, you know, when you don't get that, you know, you can't help but be a little bit disappointed. But, you know, it has good moments in it. It definitely does, yes. I mean, if the story is a little bit confusing and the space between now (laughs) and now is... uh... I mean, that's, that's an interesting concept. That's something to get you thinking, even if the realisation of, okay, so you can teleport a vase with that theory. You know. But, yeah, and I thought, compared to a lot of other series from about the time or even a few years later, I mean, you look at the sets for I, Claudius, for example, they're not a million miles removed from the sets for the Atlantis scenes. In yeah. the time monster, really. I mean, a little bit overlit, all a lot whiter than you would expect them to be. Well, I suppose that's how TV was made back in back in the day, wasn't it? You know, it was very much yeah. like theatre for like you know shot like theatre, and obviously you know cut and edited like that. You know, um, but you know we've moved on on how uh, television is is filmed, shot, and presented uh, these days. But you know. You always have that in the back of the mind when when you're watching, uh, you know, archive uh, television. You know that it's 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 done in a certain way. Yeah, except the the limitations of of, of the budgets and stuff. Um, this 
is um, probably the only story of this collection set that actually has a brand new uh, making of documentary, uh, which sees uh, the delightful Toby Hodoki um, go back to one of the major um, filming locations, which was the house where the uh, where Tom Tit was was based, and uh, he has guests Katie Manning and John Levine uh, joining him. Well, that was a, a lovely uh, documentary to uh, to watch. Some lovely recollections from uh, both of the uh, members of the cast. It's really nice, isn't it? And um, yeah, I like to. Uh, it's nice to get John Levine and Katie Manning together as well. Uh, you know, kind of uh, sparking off each other and, uh, and and remembering things together. John Levine's remembering that he did that bit of a stunt himself, where he sort of climbed along the ledge, and then when he saw it, he was really disappointed that they hadn't actually. They'd done it quite as a close-up and not a long shot, so you couldn't actually see how brave he was being, <laughs> how, how high up he was and everything, yeah. <laughs> I remember in the another um, of the Pertwee Blu-ray box sets, he's on the sofa with Katie as well, and it comes across so much that he's like still yeah. holding a candle <laughs> for her after all these years. He absolutely adores her. And uh, his name escapes me now. I knew, knew I should have written it down um, before, obviously, um, as I was watching it. The uh, it recounts the uh, the accident with the stuntman, who um, was the knight on horseback who was jousting with the the unit jeeps. And uh, it's it's interesting oh, that yes, there's a different right. recollection from the original accident, um, like report and paperwork from the archives to. Uh, they blamed him, and uh, he, uh, in his recollections, uh, blames them. Yeah, this is Greg Powell, who uh, was, uh, and he's only only twenty one or something like that when he did this. So he was, uh, yeah, kind of really fearless. Uh, yeah, put all the gear on and uh, jousted towards the the unit trucks who were all supposed to move out of, out of the way, and the last one didn't. So yeah, it's pretty horrific. He he hit it. Went flying over the truck. the The horse really took a, a wallop into the truck as well. Was like kind of broke its shoulder or something like that. It's, um... Yeah, I mean, apparently that's all right for horses. That's I know. I was, I was worried about where that story was going when uh, when they said that the uh, yeah the horse had got hit. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, obviously, yeah, I think it, it um, ended his riding career. But then he he still went on to have a, a very varied career. I mean, quite a few. Uh, Big uh, Hollywood films that were filmed over uh, in the in the UK later on in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, they're just kind of fearless, and because we'll get to this as when we talk about the the Stuart Fell documentary as well. They just uh, they just brush off these <laughs> horrific things. Set me on fire. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it made, made me feel very, uh, very kind of cowardly and stuff. They're very risk averse, but yeah, he's just yeah, he's bouncing off trucks and uh, and uh, yeah, and, and the Stuart Fell one, which uh, is a really nice retrospective of his career, and he's in a nice kind of old fashioned cinema while they show him uh, clips of. Uh, I didn't realize how much stuff he'd done, but yeah, it was, he was a, a, an acrobat and he'd been in the army, and they decided he wanted to be a stuntman because he was he was really into movies, and then. Uh, he got his big break from Ronnie Barker, which was uh, it was kind of um, yeah. It showed him in a really nice light, didn't it? That they just sort of hit it off, and he said, "Well, I'll, I'll just start writing you parts in uh, in my shows," and and went from there. 
when you said so, <laughs> when you said showed him in a really nice light, wasn't he dangling naked out of a window? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I just got a really nice bum. <laughs> has to be said. So yeah, I thought really nice light. Ah yes, must be talking about that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, it was a lovely watch that one. You've got you've got loads to look forward to, US Jason. This is oh. a, this is one of the good ones. Coming to the US in two months. Very exciting. Yeah, um, coming to the US, but unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's coming to Australia from uh, recent news that we've, uh, we've seen. Uh, it looks like yeah. Universal who distribute the Doctor Who uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, and, and the collection box sets have ended their distribution deal. So um, it's leaving Australian fans a little bit up in the air now. Yeah, so I was talking to a couple of Australian fans uh, about this, that uh, you know, from from Maximum Power, to see what what their sort of take on it was, and um, yeah, so Universal cutting all physical releases. Um, I so don't know whether another distributor will will pick it up, but obviously at the moment there's a lull in Doctor Who releases. It's all you know, kind of in production at the moment. So it's whether another distributor picks it up. Uh, you know, once the 60th anniversary specials and and the um, the Shutigawa series first series comes out, but yeah, they're speculating maybe Disney will will pick that up if they're going to distribute it uh, on streaming. Maybe they'll they'll you know sort of pick up um, physical releases as well. Yeah, I, I suppose unfortunately because we, we live in this what we would call the streaming age now, there is that kind of like sometimes reluctance. I think from big um, studios to um, put much effort into physical media, even though it still sells. Um, mm. I certainly know that, you know, and it is a shame because I, I'm a big, like, um, still I collect physical media. If I enjoy a film, really like it, I will still hunt out either the Blu-ray or, or the, the 4K HD disc. Um, um, but I think if Disney Plus, obviously they've got the worldwide rights to Doctor Who, is that going to cover the classic series and the rest of the new series input, which will be put up on Disney Plus when they start the distribution and streaming deal later on this year at the uh, broadcast of the 60th anniversary specials? Will they then assume that, well, there's not much effort in or reason to put them out on on physical media because fans can access them via the Disney Plus app and it will help them get more subscribers to uh, the Disney Plus um, streaming service. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like um, a little bit up in the air, isn't it, at the moment? Because um, I certainly, you know, being a big fan of like, you know, some of the Disney output, like the Marvel movies, um, you've seen the kind of like the effort that they put into the movies and the special features and stuff dwindle um, now. Then they'll still put out the physical media, but there's not as many special features or, you know, extras that would be on the disc because they're now saving that for those documentaries for Disney Plus. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, hopefully somebody will take, you know, the Doctor Who uh, releases on and, it, yeah. you know, if it's that's does catalog titles or something, I don't know, or archive material. Yeah, because these they're being made anyway, aren't they? You know, the, the materials all all there. It is just for somebody, I suppose, to to distribute in 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 that territory. Uh, you know, so it's uh, yeah. I suppose the hope is for for Australian fans that 
that somebody does do that because with this release we're we're exactly halfway through the collection releases now aren't we this is the 13th oh, wow. so for australian collectors to get you know nearly halfway through and then not be able to get to season nine in their own country is uh it's, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth like you say because i think a lot of doctor who fans by nature are you know completists and, and, and collectors and i suppose it also begs the question because of the the kind of um it's different in the, in the u.s i know where you get the you get the standard release and and that is kind of available all the time we're still getting the the limited edition packaging first which i think i'm right to say is forty thousand units that they make so it'd be interesting to see whether because australia is region four the uk is in region two so and they're compatible yeah whether that does put more pressure on the on the uk releases which to begin with where you know they were selling out very very quickly over here and since they started doing the standard packaging a couple of years down the line, I don't think the last last two or three releases have sold out as quickly. But, you know, if Australians start buying those as the only means of getting them initially, you know, will that uh, will that mean they they become a bit harder to come by again? Get your pre-orders in early, folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> avoid definitely. Avoid that from out. Yeah, I mean, because Australia's always been like a, a big, um, has always had a big as well hasn't it you know you'd probably say like the three biggest areas are obviously the uk then it uh, used to be australia uh and then obviously the us and i think probably the us is probably um where it's really last like probably a decade to to 15 years so uh, there's that mm. demand there and I, it is just surprising that a company has decided to pull um out like you say, halfway through um, the project, you know, of issuing these, you know, on, on so fingers fingers crossed, something done for uh, Australia. Definitely, yeah. And just and just as well, you know, so much effort and care goes into these sets that that they're, they're, they're so kind of beautifully put together. You know, if. Um, you know, if, if fans over there can't can't enjoy them as easily, it's just just a real shame from that point of view as well. Yeah, it, like you say, they are a beautiful like product. Um, you know, so much care goes in. Even though John Poot does have six fingers on one of his hands this time round, does <laughs> <laughs> he? Yeah, if you look on his uh, the the hand that's not holding the sonic screw or the uh, sonic screwdriver. Oh, yeah. Lee Binding has, has apologised and said he will be corrected for the US version. So, US Jason will get <laughs> one where um, John Pertwee has a normal amount of digits on his hands. <laughs> this is an argument in favour of buying the UK version. Well, hands are notoriously difficult to draw and paint, yeah. and uh, perhaps. That's one of the tells for if something is AI generated, isn't it? That uh, someone's got too many teeth or too many fingers or something. But, uh, right. Or Mark or the, <laughs> the boxer. <laughs> so I think we can all agree it's probably it's another excellent um, collection set from uh, um, you know the restoration. And uh, you know we look forward to probably the. the Next one that's been released. There's no announcement yet at the time of recording of this, although big rumours are season 20. 
I mean, season 20 is a bit of a yeah. gimme, really, isn't it? They have to do well, season The rumours have been that season 20 has been ready for quite some time and, and that the plan is, obviously, to release the 60th anniversary year. Um, I just last weekend went to Wales Comic Con and Peter Davidson was there. I didn't meet Peter Davidson. He wasn't one of the people that I went to, to see. Um, but apparently he was telling fans that um, expect something soon um, because it's all completed and it's all ready and it's there to be released. So um, Peter, you know, he's obviously in the know of these things. So hopefully um, he's he's right. And that will be um, probably the next big announcement, hopefully, fingers crossed. I think, like you say, it makes sense in the 60th anniversary year. And also, given the, the Doctors who have come, where all episodes exist, he's he's the only one who's only got one season out so far. So it just seems like he's due another one, uh, yeah. you know, just, just kind of by nature of that as well. So overall, how would we rate the uh, season nine? I don't put it on quite the same level as season seven and eight, which are spectacular. But I think season nine is really, really strong, especially as we're Doctor Who fans. Even if the stories are not the best from an objective point of view, there's so much to enjoy about the Pertwee era, John, Katie, Roger, the location shooting, most of the direction. This is a set that I can imagine watching over and over again, even if no particular story is in my top 10 or top 20. Some really enjoyable moments in this season. And of course, the Blu-ray packaging and the, the care that is put into this. There are so many great lines on the production notes alone. Like there's a joke in part one of Time Monster where they mention that Stuart Hyde is wearing a radiation suit, but you can see his bare hands. So the writer of the production notes writes, there seems to be a distinct lack of anti-radiation gloves in this scene. And that is a deep cut for Doctor Who fans. They also point out in part four of the Time Monster on the uh, production notes that when the Doctor's subconscious voice is heard fed back into the TARDIS console room, some of the voices are female. So those of you who are complaining that Jodie Whittaker ruined Doctor Who, John Pertwee's female subconscious ruined it first, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, I'd rate this highly for the first three stories. They're, they're all um, yeah, kind of firm favourite uh, third Doctor stories for me. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely ones I'll be revisiting. And as we say, it's nice to have the option, uh, you know, if you've got an hour and a half, you want to watch uh, the, the cut-down version, movie-length version of the of the, the Sea Devils. We've got that as well. So, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, lot of rewatchability. Well, I mean, I, I love this season. Yes, there are stronger seasons, there are stronger stories, but yes, uh, to see a series that is at the height of its powers, that experimenting with lots of different things has a dream cast, really, with the chemistry between them, the way everything works, introducing new monsters, reintroducing old monsters after a lot of years, which... Obviously, the way we watch the series these days, we don't notice so much because, you know, it might have been five years in real-life Doctor Who world in linear time, but in our time, it's probably only like a few months. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Curse of Peladon, fond memories of the first watch. I think, I like, you had Jason as well. And uh, Day of the Daleks, I like interesting ideas. Um, 
Sea Devils, obviously iconic and some wonderful, wonderful moments in it. The Mutants, I always watch it wanting it to be better than it is, but it's still got some brilliant ideas. And the Time Monster is the one I'm the least familiar with of all of the series. I think I've probably only seen it three times in my life. And uh, so if I've only seen something three times, I wouldn't want to condemn it altogether. I think there are a lot of lovely scenes in it. I like the scenes in Bessie and the location shots and the the scientists. I like all of that stuff. Um, I still haven't made my mind up about the Atlantis, but Ingrid Pitt is superb. There are some brilliant ideas in there. And one day the ending will make sense to me, I'm sure. I think, I think I've probably got a thing with the time monster as well. It's the, it's the only one I saw for the first time as an adult, so I don't have that you know, kind of childhood attachment to it as well, which is probably the reason that it doesn't doesn't quite I don't have quite the same affection for it. But still, as we said, it's got some wonderful moments in it. And I think that's something that you could sum up. Yeah, I will say that, you know, it's not my favourite season of Pertwee Year. That still probably is an equal split between seven and ten for me. But um, you know, with every single John Pertwee season and every single John Pertwee story, there are absolutely delightful moments in every single one and it's one of kind of like the eras where you could have enjoyment in whichever story you chose and uh, you can see the delight of the production team the actors they're all having a great time there's that familial uh, aspect to it with the unit family um so you know it's it's another excellent um collection set uh, as well as the extras that are on it as well. So well done to the restoration team. Uh, absolutely another great job. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Keep them coming. Bravo. Okay, so uh, where can we uh, see you guys? Um, Mark? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as at Quark McMalice, and obviously you can find me here on Trap One and uh, on Maximum Power when it comes back. I am at Cup of Tea 69 on Twitter. I am at Denisery at toot.community on Mastodon, but I haven't had much time to be there recently. And there's links to my blog and stuff on my Twitter bio. And you, US Jason? I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's DR Who Novels. My side project, Doctor Who Literature, just released episode 75 with friend of Trap One, Conrad, a few days ago. All three of you have been on Doctor Who Literature before, and all three of you will be on Doctor Who Literature again. You can find Doctor Who Literature on just about any one of your podcatchers of choice, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and you can also find the link to it in my Twitter bio. Very good show, even if I do say so myself. <laughs> fantastic and you can find me on twitter at djangomax72 and also my youtube channel bearded geek toy reviews where i review stuff that's uh, doctor who star wars marvel dc horror figures lots of collectible stuff um and so you can find me on there anyway thank you guys for a, another excellent uh, trap one podcast it's been an absolute delight discussing this and uh, journeying back to 1972. And 
I hope you guys who are also listening to it have also enjoyed it as much as we have recording it. We will see you very soon on the next Trap One podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Good night now. Thank <laughs> you.